Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome to the AUKUS Amplified podcast series brought to you by the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. This is the second of seven podcasts highlighting a few of the many outstanding papers presented at the 30th annual meeting of the association, including some of the award papers. My name is Stefano Bini. I am on faculty at UCSF, and I'm the chair of the Digital Health and Social Media Committee at AUKUS. I'll be joined as co-host by Dr. Dax Steele, who's the vice chair of this committee. He's uh, calling in from Florida. Welcome, Dax. Good to be here. Awesome. So the title of the paper we're highlighting today is uh, related to smoking cessation. It's Does Smoking Cessation Prior to Elective Total Joint Arthroplasty Result in Continued Abstinence? Dr. James Hall and Dr. Tim Brown are joining us from Iowa. Welcome, gentlemen. Yep, thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Great. Gentlemen, thanks again for taking the time out of your busy practice to join us on this podcast. So Dr. Hall, tell us a little bit about uh, how you became interested in this topic and what inspired you to do this work? Sure. So certainly we're aware of the complications associated with smoking and total joint replacement. And, you know, I think we were just interested in evaluating what happens to our patients postoperatively with regard to their smoking habit, whether or not they remain abstinent long-term. And so that's what we wanted to look into. Yeah, it's a really great question. Of course, why we're highlighting your paper. It's a really good question. We saw all deal with it. Tim, on your end of it, as you were thinking about doing this research project, was a specific story that got you motivated to, to look a little deeper? Yeah, I think often with uh, research ideas, there's a single interaction with a patient uh, that raises a question. For this study, uh, there was a, a really stubborn young patient who had a really bad hip, had pulled him out of his job put on disability and he was really had a decrease in his quality of life. He came to clinic and we drew a hard line, said you have to stop smoking for the reasons and kind of laid out our evidence-based reasons why we ask our patients to stop smoking. When I saw him in follow-up, he was able to quit smoking, had his hip replacement, went back to work. When I saw him in follow-up, he still stopped. And he made an off-the-cuff comment that our hardline stance, even with no education, no intervention, just stopping the cigarette was able to allow him to be successful because he needed the hip intervention so bad. So he laid out the other things he had tried. He tried chewing tobacco, gum patches, counseling. He tried all these other interventions and he said, your intervention was more successful, which was uh, really fascinating to me that we could just draw a line in the sand and that could be successful. So we decided to look back at our policy over the last 10 years and see how we've been. Okay. Well, those answers are great. It's a good topic to get into. Let's look at the study design now. I'm going to ask Dr. Hall, I have a few questions. The study design timeline was a retrospective review between 2009 and 2018. Why was that timeline chosen? Yeah, so we specifically wanted to look starting in 2009 because that's when all of our uh, EPIC data started to be compiled. So that was sort of the reason that we, we chose that as a starting time point. We chose to end the study in 2018 because we wanted to have ample follow-up time for these patients to demonstrate long-term smoking cessation. And were all of the physicians using the anabasine testing that whole time frame? They were, yeah. One of the inclusion criteria for this was that we had to have that data available for each patient. So in the cohort, you identified 249 patients 
And after contacting them, some were lost to follow up, some passed away. You had a 50% response rate, which we were able to get data from. You asked them a number of different questions. What do you think were the important responses you were able to obtain from these patients? You know, I think obviously the single most important question was, did they resume smoking postoperatively? I think the follow-up to that was pretty interesting as well. We asked each patient who did resume smoking postoperatively what the timeframe was for when they resumed smoking. Um, we wanted to look into that sort of as a sub-analysis. I think the other pertinent question that we asked was whether or not these patients quit smoking for the explicit purpose of having surgery. You know, I think a, a limitation in any retrospective study is you're limited by the accuracy of the data collection. And so we found that several of those folks who had been listed as smokers either were not tobacco smokers or maybe chewing tobacco uh, as opposed to smoking or smoking other substances. Additionally, several of these folks had quit years ago, you know, upwards of eight years previous to their total joint arthroplasty. And so uh, as a result, we did not include them in this study, but I thought that was an important question to ask. Another area you asked was about quit aids. And I know a number of patients responded using them, not using them, but there was no statistical significance found between the, those that remain abstaining for long-term versus those that resumed. Do you think that was a, a power issue in terms of patients or maybe a recall issue with which patients you were able to get a hold of? I don't know the answer to that. I suspect it was likely a power issue just in terms of the number of patients that we had involved. But interestingly, even though it wasn't significant, the, the majority of folks did quit cold turkey in terms of our findings. They, they did not use quit aids. And I don't believe that there's a common guidance provided by the surgeons here at the University of Iowa. Well, I think based on your findings, we can call the impetus to have surgery to stop smoking one of an essential quit aid uh, for these patients. So I think that's definitely something that we can add to our counseling for patients based on that. Yeah, I, I would agree. All right, Dr. Brown, I have a question for you regarding the overall findings of the paper. How does the findings, once you completed this, change your practice and or the way you see smokers and counsel them prior to surgery? Yeah, I think I was a little surprised that our intervention held up, if you can call it an intervention, that held up for the long term. Uh, about a quarter of the patients remained abstinent after their surgery and were still absent at the time of our phone call, which was really impressive to me. So when I talk to patients pre-op, I, I, I have a very frank conversation. Everybody knows that smoking is bad for your overall health for many more systems than just the musculoskeletal system at the time of my surgery. And I just tell them, frankly, you know, we won't consider surgery for smoking. We'll test you the week before, but if you are able to quit and have the operation, your quality of life from a musculoskeletal standpoint will improve. And there's a chance, you know, there's a one in four chance here. This is the one push that enables you to quit smoking for good. And that will extend your life expectancy, decrease your cardiovascular risk, save you money every year. And I think I've gone from being almost in a very frank and blunt and mean statement, you know, you have to stop smoking or you can't get on the surgery schedule to a more caring and positive message saying, look, if you are able to quit, this could pretend very good things for your overall health and it allows you to have the surgery. So I think it's helped me a little bit um, that term. Now I feel like I'm on the same team as the patient rather than being an adversary. In terms of follow-up research or where we go from here, do you feel like developing an optimal window 
of when to stop smoking prior to surgery and how long to remain abstinent from smoking after surgery will be helpful in, in adding to the base of literature that you've added to already? For sure. I think if you look at the limitations in our study, recall bias is very hard, especially when you call somebody 10 years after their hip replacement. And we saw that in the phone calls and the things that the patients said over the phone. We have a a big body of literature here at Iowa with text messaging apps and bots and contact via smartphone with our patients. You know, even in Iowa, where you might think that we have a population that doesn't carry smartphones, everybody has a smartphone. And the total joint population that's older and less technology savvy in the Midwest than they are on the West Coast with Dr. Beanie, patients still love getting messages from us every day. Now we communicate with their patients on post-op day one, two, three, four at home about their opiate use, give them messages about physical therapy. And we have almost universally had positive responses from the patients with these contact measures We're kind of exploring how to do that with our smokers, kind of offering encouragement, offering counseling, offering uh, some work with our psychologists in the department to try to say, if we were this successful with no intervention, with just drawing a hard line in the sand, if we can really offer an intervention and get daily granular data about cigarette usage, smoking, quit AIDS, and things like that, we think that we can have some really, really great data in the next couple of years. You know, Tim, I'm going to jump in here because you're speaking straight to my heart, right? I love the technology stuff, as you know. And one of the things that I love about what you said is we can rethink how we approach these problems by leveraging new technologies. We didn't have the ability to call our patients every day to say, hey, just remember, don't requit smoking on the day that they're about to pick up that cigarette because things just, and they just want a little extra hook. You call them up. You can't do that, but you can with these technologies. You can reach out to them, make them feel cared for, make them feel part of the solution and allow and support them in their quest to quit smoking. So totally agree with you. There's been a lot of success being uh, demonstrated with these technologies. And maybe one way to get at the question of how long, what these windows are, is to use these technologies to reach out to patient and track them and just see the ones that actually do resume smoking and see what happens to those patients. So I think that's a great idea. A couple of questions I have for you as well. Do you have any sense of whether somebody who's a pack a week smoker or a pack a day smoker had a higher or lower success rate with this cold turkey kind of technique, or do you think that's part of it? I think it's a really good question. We had a similar question. It was, I think, part of the recall buys it very hard to ask the patients about their exact quantity. You know, if, if you look in our electronic medical record, we have some estimation of the pack per day that they had. We did not look at that going back. I think it's a really interesting idea going forward having a a true, very accurate count of how many cigarettes the patient is going through preoperatively the day of surgery, a week after, a month after, six months after. And then, of course, correlating that with the outcomes, with patient-reported outcomes, radiographic outcomes, so surgical site infection outcomes. That's kind of our idea going forward is trying to get much more specific data like that. And Dr. Brown, as you looked at this, you're dealing with altering patient behavior based on an intervention and the behavior we're looking at is addiction. Do you think there's any translational knowledge we can gain from this going from smoking to say opiate use or possibly even alcohol use as two other areas of addiction 
that might benefit from an intervention supported by a surgeon prior to surgery? What are your thoughts yeah, on that? What you I think it's a you guys? great question. I'd say from the opioid question, we kind of had the, a similar association, but we went the other way around. You know, mm. when a few years ago, we started looking at our prescribing patterns at the University of Iowa. We realized that we were part of the problem, I'll mm. kind of admit. We developed an educational intervention. We have a randomized trial. You know, we developed the text messaging bots and apps to intervene with our patients in terms of opiates. And we had a, a drastic reduction in prescribing patterns. I mean, we prescribed about 30% what we used to three years ago at the same time as having healthier and happier patients, which is something that nursing administration uh, thought would be impossible here. So we've completely changed and working with that group on decreasing opiate use made us think maybe we can use the same interventions, similar education and touches from the surgical team to offer encouragement, psychological messages from our, our psychologists, helping the patients, as you say, that we're in a stressful time post-op that want to reach for a cigarette and, and have the comfort of the, the addiction. How can we intervene? So I think for opiates, it, we've already shown it's successful. We have randomized data that are coming out that shows it's successful. Alcohol has been personally a much more challenging issue. It is much harder to track those patients, to understand what level of addiction and abuse the individual patient is going through. We have a struggle. We have meetings to discuss this and, and as a modifiable risk factor before elective surgery, just to be frank, it's very hard for us to figure out. I mean, we have special counseling programs that we send them to, but we, we have not figured out how to apply the same, same idea to that population. Okay. One of my last thoughts is a comment and question to both of you. Uh, we could start with Dr. Hall. I found that trying to get patients to quit smoking can sometimes be a challenging, difficult, and adversarial conversation with a patient. But after reading your paper and after seeing some of this data and hearing what you have said in this podcast, it's extremely collaborative the way you, you deal with patients and you get them on the same team as you. And I think that's very helpful. It breaks down barriers right off the bat when you're talking to patients about this and it doesn't make it as if, if you don't do this, you're not having surgery, which is obviously not a situation you wanna get in with patients. So I want you to maybe go into a little more about how you feel having this discussion with patients and the satisfaction you get once you get through to these patients and once they uh, get on the same team with you, stop smoking, and hopefully remain abstinent after surgery. I'll start with you, Dr. Hall, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think one of the important takeaways from this paper is just the impact that we can have on our patients in terms of their overall health. It was pretty enlightening to see how many of these patients successfully quit smoking after just having a total joint replacement in terms of uh, that's their motivation to quit is surgery. So I think with that insight, it's much easier to have that conversation with the patient in terms of taking the stance of encouragement that this could potentially be the motivation that they need to quit smoking. And, you know, in our paper, we demonstrated almost one in four continue to remain absent. I think that having that mindset that this is a positive opportunity for the patient, I think just changes your mind frame and the discussion in a positive way. Your thoughts, Dr. Brown? Yeah, I'd say being in the clinic day in and day out and performing research at the same time, the goal of all of us that do clinical research is to translate the research into the day-to-day -day interactions with our patients. I'd say 
you know, I used to dread telling a patient they had to stop smoking. It's hard to change a habit or an addiction that's been there for 20 years. And you're right. It does feel adversarial. You go in and I would just say, look, you have a bad hip. You need a hip replacement. No one will argue that. We're not going to do that surgery if you continue to smoke. And that's the end of it. That would lead to negative interactions, lead to bad comments on press gainy scores and things like that. What this has shown me, the clinical data from big series, from outside places, from registries, large databases, that's abstract to patients. Now, if I sit down with an individual patient and tell them, this is the percentages, this is why we do what we do, they get a glossy look in their eyes. This is not abstract. This is our data from my patients at the University of Iowa. Patients just like you sitting here, if we have this hard conversation, which we do, you're able to quit smoking and have your hip replacement. You will get better from your activities of daily living, your quality of life from your hip. And there's a chance, there's a, there's a not insignificant chance that we've made your overall health better because now you no longer smoke and you're able to quit for a sustained period of time. So it has totally changed the interaction. I mean, it sounds kind of silly and hokey, but it really has. You know, the conversation with patients now is positive. And if we can work in the future to develop some interventions, you had some easy psychological messaging, some way to reach out to the patient and offer encouragement. I think we have a really good chance of helping our patients in more ways than one. Well, gentlemen, it's been an outstanding discussion. I love where it went, the ability to do translational research that actually impacts patient outcomes, this discussion around the opportunity we have to connect with patients in a very personal way to help them with a life journey beyond and above what we do surgically is really empowering. And I really want to thank you both for taking the time to do the research and publishing it and bring it to our attention. It's paper number 14, and I look forward to hearing you present it from the podium at the 30th annual meeting of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. With that, I invite everybody listening to come and join us for our next five podcasts that we'll be recording over the next few weeks. And thank you so much to everyone participating. Thanks for having us. Yep. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Right on, Dax. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. See you soon. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.